two or three guys to ah, I lost you. Hey there, welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is September 24th, 2019, and I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. I'm joined, as always, in the studio by one of my co-hosts, senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hello, Sarah. <laughs> Hi, Neil. How's it going? It's good. Well, How are you? I'm good. How'd you, how's your fantasy team do this weekend? Uh, we won. I beat uh, our wonderful podcast intern, Jake Arlo, uh, nice. and, and got some you know pretty good performances. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling good, so instantaneously I will lose next yeah, week. Yeah, that, that seems right. On the line from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm, I'm great. How how was your fantasy football team performance this weekend? Uh, my team lost because I didn't play a kicker and I <laughs> lost by a point. So if I could do it all again, I'd probably play a kicker, which... <laughs> interesting, interesting. I had one on the roster. I just didn't put him in the lineup. Wait, you were complaining that you were unable to pick up a kicker, but you had a kicker on your roster? I had I had Adam Vinatieri. And Why didn't you just like play he him? He was like might be losing his job and what? Look, right, but I in didn't the put absence him, I, of I took him out of the else. lineup and I didn't put him back in. It happens. It happens. It happens to real teams. That does not. No, happen I was going to say teams. that does not no. happen to real teams. Here I was feeling sorry for you because of the technical problems of picking up a new kicker. I did not realize that you had one just sitting there. He would rather play no one than play Adam Vinatieri. Yeah. L- look, I blame myself. <laughs> I'm mostly to blame. Mostly. For not putting him in the lineup. Mostly. I want to talk about, instead of this, the slack you sent me at 10.15 a.m. on Saturday, <laughs> which I think our listeners should hear about, which was simply just the Wisconsin fight song an hour and 15 minutes into the Michigan game. <laughs> I didn't see it in real time, but I just wanted everyone to know that that's, that's what we're dealing with, Jeff, Sarah. In fairness, they were getting boat raced. I just want to say... They were getting humiliated. It was horrible. I stand by that slack 100%. I feel like it got across my point perfectly, mm-hmm. and I didn't need to say anything else, so it was great. I slacked Jeff yesterday. I was like, have they fired Harbaugh yet? And you were like, who cares? <laughs> Are you? <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> I'm so, I'm the stages so of, of Jeff's grief. <laughs> I can't even formulate an opinion on that. That's right up there, Jeff, with the time that in our shared DM with the three of us, Sarah and I were just incidentally talking about the Jets giving up a touchdown, and you wrote in all caps, thanks for the update. <laughs> <laughs> that comes up a lot yeah, more than you we reference it. yeah we do <laughs> which is great i love oh. it <laughs> poor jeff another um big development this weekend i won my fantasy matchup against oh okay our producer big grace this was all just this a is prelude important. to talk about sarah's <laughs> fantasy team <laughs> hey in tr- when we play each other within the podcast i think that merits special it is true it's a special call out event. jeff yes. and i never play each other this season a- and sarah fun. i will play a kicker if we ever play each other so leaving fake football behind um let's talk about real football so last week we talked about how to talk about antonio brown and this week the patriots decided they didn't want to talk about him again After Brown sent intimidating text messages to one of his accusers, he was released. The NFL has said they're not going to place him on the exempt list as long as he's a free agent. This way, any suspension he would serve would actually count against the team that picks him up. AB lashed out on social media in a sort of, you can't fire me, I quit tweet. 
He also called out Patriots owner Robert Kraft and Steelers quarterback Ben Roethlisberger as examples of double standards in the NFL. And he tweeted out his class schedule for online coursework at his alma mater, Central Michigan, where he is confirmed to have re-enrolled. This might be the end of the story for Antonio Brown this season, unless another team picks him up. Do we think any other team will grab him? I mean, it sort of depends on the investigation, right? And, you know, where that turns out. But it seems like as of now, he's kind of radioactive. Never discount NFL teams' willingness to still pick up toxic people if they still can catch footballs. Yeah, I mean, there are rumors that teams are still interested in him and are just waiting to see what happens. So it's not like teams are like, no, no, we would never. They're they're still just waiting. Yeah, I don't think it'll be this year. I think he's done for the season. But I think next offseason, you know, the guy who's two years removed from being the best receiver in football, I think teams will or at least have shown a willingness to overlook a lot if it can help them win, as Neil said. So we'll see. But guys, Antonio Brown said he's done with the NFL. So, you know, maybe he's just retired Mm -hmm. and we can take him at his word for that. Just like he said he would retire after not getting the the helmet that he wanted and various other things. You know, all of this happening has really made me forget that there was that whole helmet issue. What a what an interesting summer. This is the most bizarre and like there's no other word to describe it. Saga that ever played out for one player in the span of two months, right? Yeah. Like, is anything else even close? No. I like, what is even anything. in the same neighborhood as this? No. Deflategate, we talked about last week as, like, just the NFL weirdness fully on display, but a totally different scenario. I mean, all the, other, all the other examples are just, you know, just crimes, not the weirdness beforehand. This was just a combination of so many factors. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, look, Michael Vick went to jail, came back, and had a, like, second... NFL career. I mean, you know, stranger things are happening. The, the Cowboys signed Greg Hardy after some horrible off-field stuff. And, you know, so second chances are given in the NFL. The Patriots coming out of, I just still don't understand what they were ever doing in any of this. Like, how do they look coming out of this? I don't think anybody looks good yeah, in yeah, any yeah. of this, right? Um, and I guess the Patriots, like, drew a line in the sand around him, intimidating the, the latest accuser to come out uh, accusing Antonio Brown of sexual misconduct. So, you know, they were like, we're OK with these as long as they're allegations and, you know, we're fine putting you in instantly into a game and throwing to you and almost making a point to throw to you uh, and, and get you involved in the in the team. But when you kind of try to intimidate someone who's accusing you, that's too far. I don't know. I mean, they don't deserve a gold star for that, even though someone finally did something that could be considered the right thing, I guess. Right. I, I don't know. I, think <laughs> I don't the, know how to unpack it, to be honest. Yeah. The league not suspending him yet, making that a consequence still for whoever picks him up, seems like a the right move, though I'm not sure the league can really claim victory here either, given their just sort of wait-and-see approach to all of this. So, I don't know. It... Um, it's a mess. I guess I'm glad that the, the football part of it is over. There was almost never a football part of any yeah. of the Antonio Brown Yeah, except saga. for week one, which – or wait, week, week two. two. 
Me too. Me too. <laughs> he he is now the all time the all time Patriots leader in touchdown catches per game, minimum one touchdown. But you know who's like super close to him? So Antonio Brown has one touchdown per game. Randy Moss has zero point nine six touchdowns per game over like fifty times as many games. That's oh, wow. crazy. Yeah. That's insane. Randy Moss. Great player. Great player. Great Fantastic player. player. Minnesota hero. On today's show, we'll discuss the NBA's new anti-tampering rules, we'll look ahead to the final week of the MLB regular season, and we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. Last week, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver announced new anti-tampering regulations intended to prohibit coaches, managers, and players from enticing players who are under contract elsewhere. This comes after this summer's free agency period saw more than $1.4 billion in new deals announced within the first 90 minutes of the actual free agency period. Is it 90 minutes or 90 seconds? (laughs) Yeah, hard to tell. The new regulations require teams to keep records of all their contacts with agents and rival teams, and five teams each year will be randomly selected for an audit of those communications. The penalty, if tampering is found, has also been raised from $5 million to $10 million. Rachel Nichols on The Jump gave her take on these new rules. I get why the NBA is trying to do all this, but it still feels like a whole new set of rules to strengthen a system that isn't working in the first place. Neil, are these new rules enforceable? Sort of. So if the league wants to, it can investigate team communications. It can even seize devices, although Adam Silver doesn't seem to want to go that far yet. And so all of these rules are designed to make it more likely that teams would leave a paper trail behind if they violated any of these rules. And the league does have the right to, you know, kind of examine these uh, despite privacy concerns. Um, As SI's legal analyst Michael McCann noted in a story yesterday, the NBA is a private entity. It's not subject to constitutional requirements prohibiting unreasonable search and seizure. So... Everyone who works for an NBA team signs contracts pledging that they will abide by the NBA's rules and giving the NBA the power to kind of enforce those rules over them. But we should say that the league already had most, if not you know, all of these tools at their disposal already, uh, aside from like the degree of the penalties. And almost every single time it declined to use them. Adam Silver says he's not really interested in policing player-to-player communications, which it seems like a lot of the most egregious things that happened tampering-wise over the summer uh, involved. And, you know, the best they can kind of hope for in that department is trying to curb situations where players are kind of acting as de facto representatives for teams, going to another player under contract and convince him to demand a trade or force his way out. And that's sort of what happened with Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, uh, where there was this report, I think Deadspin put it out there, that Kawhi Leonard picked from this list that the Clippers gave him of players that he wanted to play with, and he picked Paul George. And then, depending on the reporting, the Clippers either worked the trade from there without Kawhi's involvement, or Kawhi spent the week trying to cajole Paul George into asking for a trade from Oklahoma City. So they're hoping to maybe catch some of those cases, especially if there are communications between the team and the player and the players acting as a representative. But there's so many workarounds. One executive told Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix that if you use encrypted apps to communicate, there are no records and they can kind of just circumvent it this way. And the only people they would catch are the people that are sort of the dumbest kind of, you know, most hapless uh, people trying to tamper in the first place. People make 
stupid comments. I think that was maybe a pointed uh, note about Magic Johnson, who's not even involved with the Lakers anymore, but he was sort of the king of saying things about players who are on other teams and being fined for tampering in that regard. But like the smart teams, I think, are going to find ways around this. And it does still kind of come back to you you can't police player with player contact and the league doesn't really want to do that anyway but players deciding to play with other players is a big part of whatever tampering happens in the modern free agency is this just about image for the nba yeah i think if you look at any other industry like newspapers banks you know any kind of corporation people who are constantly like talking to their fellow employees who work in the same industry and trying to like poach people and trying to like angle jobs with competitors and it happens all the time like it it happens everywhere i think it's just a bad look for the nba the way it went down this off season where clearly every team was tampering because all these deals were ready in place before they were like supposed to be able to negotiate and i think it, it's mostly optics And these are mostly just threats that will sort of act as a deterrent. Because frankly, like, if you weren't tampering this offseason, you're at a disadvantage. You know, it's like the old Lance Armstrong cycling thing, you know, where everyone is cheating. If you're not cheating, you're going to fall behind. So you kind of have, I'm not, by the way, I'm not excusing Lance Armstrong. (laughs) Very pro cheating. But I'm just saying it's a mentality. You know, if, if you look around and literally everyone's doing it, you're at it, your career and your livelihood is affected if you're not doing it. So that needs to change. But whether, you know, they're going to actually start taking these guys' phones and that kind of thing, that's never going to happen. Also, all these guys are friends. And they're going to continue to talk. And, like, there's no way to – like, we can't even figure out if the president was talking to another world leader. I think they're not going to be able to figure out if, you know, Steph Curry is talking to someone on the, uh, you know, Raptors or something. You know, like, it's not going to happen. But you're totally right, Jeff. I mean, there is this perception that free agency is kind of a joke. But I don't know. I don't know what a successful version of this policy looks like. Right. Does every do the teams just play along and keep their illegal communications better hidden? Like how I mean, does that solve the image problem and then everything's fine? I mean, maybe 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 they make like one big high profile example out of one team, whoever the first team is to like run too far afoul of these new rules and then, you know, hope that that sort of sets to rest all of the speculation about you know, tampering and all of that. But I don't know. It seems like the NBA is kind of damned if they do and damned if they don't, because it is bad PR if a team is seen as building a team illegitimately, which is sort of, you know, what happened this summer and the cause for all of these changes. But then it's also bad PR if the league is seen as sort of orchestrating and, and, you know, tamping down on some moves and player movement to some locations. Like, remember the the uproar over the blocked Chris Paul Lakers trade uh, in the last decade? They have the power to void contracts if worse comes to worse, but I just don't think there's any way they're going to do that. They're not going to, you know, reverse players moving places. And so, yeah, it seems sort of toothless still. So let's zoom out for a second and look at the basis for this whole idea, the idea that tampering is bad for the NBA. And like you said, you know, illegitimately forming teams. Is tampering actually bad? Are we having the wrong conversation? 
Well, what what criteria are we using to judge whether something is good or bad? Because the NBA's free agency has become wildly popular. It's mm-hmm. it's one of the most popular features of the league now. And it's like totally in keeping with the way that a lot of the drama of the league is played out on like Instagram and Twitter. You know, it's on <laughs> social media as much as it is on on the court. And so... If anything, the summer kind of frenzy feeds into that. I mean, it's fun for people. It's fun. It adds this whole layer of interest to the to the league. Do they just need to go about it in a different way? I think that's exactly it. I think they just don't like the way it was handled. And I don't think this is like a, a measure to get rid of like super teams or something like that. Like that's clear. Like that bell can't be unrung. There will be now be super teams, I think, perpetually in the NBA. These guys want to win championships. They want to like play with other great players. And that's the way it's going to be, at least for the foreseeable future. And if anything, now we're seeing sort of less super teams in the mold of like big threes. Uh, our colleague Zach Lowe actually wrote about how now the, the craze is the big two. So we're sort of seeing like more teams have two of those stars, but they're sort of like scaled down mini super teams. And that should also be good for or better, at least for competitive balance if if the, uh, there are stars are joining teams two at a time instead of three at a time there are more teams can have two stars it's just math <laughs> it's just math so is there is there an argument though for the league's position that you know collusion between players or or at least between teams is is wrong well, there's always been an argument that collusion between teams is bad uh and often that is just served to kind of you know keep teams from signing players and paying players and sort of reduce their their mobility between teams and so it's natural that collusion between players is sort of increasing their mobility between teams it's not really increasing the money they get because the the league has actively tried to bribe players uh to stay in you know the locations that they already were by making a player's existing team in free agency be able to offer sometimes a lot more money to you know, a player rather than a team that would be signing them away. And it hasn't worked. Players are willing to give up a bunch of money to be able to choose who they play with and where they play. And so I don't know how many more tools the league has at its disposal to prevent them from doing that. And I mean, in some ways, we should be applauding players for, you know, taking more control over their careers and and choosing the circumstances that they want their very brief window of being, you know, a world-class athlete to kind of play out. I mean, there have been examples, obviously, of players who did not want to play with their friends and, in fact, wanted to just beat everybody else in the league by themselves. I think you're talking about Michael Jordan. I am talking about Michael Jordan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's sort of, uh, this all kind of dates back to when LeBron James shocked everyone by joining forces with Dwayne Wade and Chris Bosh on uh, the Heat in 2010. It was such an unprecedented move to kind of willingly as a player in the prime of your career and widely considered to be the best player in the league, join forces with another 
you know, top five player and, and somebody else who's in like top 15. That hadn't really happened before. And the argument at the time, I remember very clearly, was the idea that like, oh, Michael Jordan would have never done this. He would want to beat Dwayne Wade. He would see Dwayne Wade as a rival. He would not want to join forces with him and try to win with him. And I think it's very interesting that LeBron has sort of brought about this cultural shift in basketball where like Jordan, his mindset was often, you know, I want to be the best. And in order to prove that I'm the best, I have to vanquish all of my other rivals. There are those great stories about him and Clyde Drexler being on opposite teams during Dream Team practice. And because Drexler, somebody somewhere once had compared Drexler to Jordan and maybe been like, hmm, maybe Drexler could pass Jordan as the best shooting guard in the league or something like that. Jordan was like, oh, no, I'm going to go after you with such a ferocity in this like practice just to prove that I am better than you. And you saw this time and again with him that he wanted to kind of eliminate all doubt, but he had to do it by proving something. I think with LeBron, it's almost the opposite, where it's sort of like LeBron assumed he was the best, didn't really even feel like he needed to vanquish any rivals to kind of prove it, and then everything kind of flows from there. But Jordan was also competing against teams that weren't doing this. I mean, like, if you had today's mindset back then, Patrick Ewing could join the Utah Jazz and play with Stockton and Malone, and all of a sudden, maybe Jordan isn't winning those titles, and now, oh, he's got to recruit someone to come. So, I mean, it's easy to, like, look back on that and say, you know, he was this competitor who did it alone, but it's also like he was playing within that particular landscape. Do you think the tendency to play with your friends or set up situations where your team is going to be successful with people you've brought in, is that more about wanting to win championships or wanting to play with people you like? I think it's about winning championships because, as we've seen with, like, Kevin Durant, he now has kind of come out and said ever since he left Golden State that like the one of the only reasons why he joined the Warriors was to be able to sort of add championships to his resume because he felt like that was what was missing. I think it also part of it has to do with the fact that it works in basketball. It's definitely proven to work. You can't do this in football. You can't do this in baseball. So if you're willing to, you know, concede of a little bit of your own personal stats and your volume in name of a title, then I think most people are willing to do that because they want to win titles. Winning titles is fun and it's great for your legacy. It'll keep happening. Well, we only have the very, very long NBA regular season, then the fun playoffs to go through before we find out how these free agency rules will work. I'm looking forward to it. (laughs) Yeah, something to look forward to. Let's pause for a word from this week's sponsor, Candid. It's officially fall, and while we may still be basking in these last few sunny afternoons, the holiday season is barreling down on us faster than we realize. The holidays can be stressful for a whole host of reasons, but one of those reasons should not be taking closed-mouth photos while everyone else is grinning ear to ear. Getting a photo-ready smile is now even easier with clear aligners from Candid. Candid aligners are comfortable, removable, and completely invisible. They cost 65% less than braces and help straighten your teeth faster, too, with treatments taking just six months. To get started with Candid aligners, an experienced orthodontist will create a custom treatment plan with a 3D preview so you know what your teeth will look like after you're done. And with each aligner purchased, Candid donates $25 to Smile Train, which brings safe, 100% free cleft lip and palate treatment to children around the globe. 
Go to candidco.com slash takedown and use code takedown to get $75 off. That's candidco.com slash takedown, code takedown for $75 off. It's the final week of the MLB regular season. And while many of the playoff berths are secured, a few wildcard races are coming down to the wire. One of the teams that seems to always be in this position is the Tampa Bay Rays. Here's Carl Ravitch and Ryan Howard on ESPN's Baseball Tonight discussing the standings going into the final week of the regular season. You see every season it's like Rays and A's are the same team. They're always that same team that just happen to be in the conversation come this time of the year. And they, so they're always like doing pit bulls. Right. They are. Grab onto the back of your leg and they ain't letting go. That's the truth. Neil, you recently wrote about the Rays' predicament headed into the postseason. Do you agree with Ravitch's vivid imagery there? Are the Rays the pant-leg-biting pit bulls <laughs> of MLB? I guess. I mean, in a certain sense, they have the lowest payroll in baseball. They use a lot of like weird tactics, like uh, the opener that was famously, um, they were the ones that started that trend. They do things like they stash a, a lefty reliever at first base <laughs> just to sort of save them from having to bring uh, someone else in in between, and then they they can use him on a subsequent uh, batter. They do things that you wouldn't necessarily see a more talented team or a team that spends more on players doing all the time. But they're also good. I mean, I think we, you know, some of these metaphors for them as this like plucky team that could undersells that they're one of the best teams in baseball. And maybe, you know, if we can't really figure out why, that's uh, a failure of analysis more than anything else, because they're a really deep team. They have a lot of you know, good players on board. And I think just because they're a small market team, we tend to, you know, gloss over that. They do seem like they're always in this tough luck situation where they'll win a bunch of games and then, you know, miss the playoffs by a few games because some other team happened to have like a great year the same year. And it's usually the A's. I think the you know, <laughs> yeah. it is funny how the Rays and A's are always like these mirror images of each other. Um, and the A's have come out on top the past couple of years. So where are the Rays sitting right now in our our playoff model odds? So right now we give the Rays a 61% chance of making the playoffs, um, and we have them tracking for 96 wins. The team that they're fighting with, the Cleveland Indians, have a 43% chance of making the playoffs, and we think the Indians will win 95 games but are more likely to miss the playoffs than not. So it's a really crazy situation in the AL right now where one of these teams would win 95 games and not even make the playoffs in the, in an era where there are two wild cards. That's yeah. Amazing. I I can't even last year, the Rays were one of only, I think, three teams to win 90 games and miss the playoffs in the expanded wildcard era. Uh, So going back to 2012, one of those teams was the 2013 Texas Rangers. Everyone remembers that team fondly, I'm sure. (laughs) And then the other two teams were the 2012 Rays and the 2018 Rays. So the Rays have been through this already before. And then this year, ESPN's David Schoenfeld pointed out that if the Rays run the table over the rest of their um, their games, they could set a franchise record for wins and still just barely make the playoffs or find themselves in like a one-game play-in situation. Mm-hmm. So what will make the difference over this last week for the Rays and the Indians? Well, I mean, the Rays have that half-game lead that's pretty good. Um this is a team that went through a lot of injuries earlier in the season. Uh, guys like Blake Snell and some of the guys that they were really counting on to have like star performances missed 
a chunk of time. Now they're mostly back uh, with the team. Also, the Rays, on paper at least, if you believe in wins above replacement, they're probably the better team. They rank fifth in total war this season. Cleveland only ranks ninth. The counter-argument to that is that the Indians have slightly better run differential and they play a slightly easier schedule over the next uh, week plus. So it's still up in the air. For all the things the Rays do right, I mean, just also some of their front office stuff is really should be commended look at the chris archer trade last year i know people have talked about the chris archer trade a lot but you know they flipped him a homegrown starter for a better pitcher in tyler glass now and a legitimate star in austin meadows if the mets do that same trade with noah Syndergaard, which they easily could have got they probably got a got a better return then they're probably in the playoffs right now so you really do have to commend what the Rays have done, especially comparing baseball to our last segment where it shows the difference in baseball. And and it's really probably the great thing about baseball that a team can seriously compete and still be at a financial disadvantage and not have, you know, a super team or anything close to it. Well, Jeff, let's take a look at the National League. How are things shaking out there? It's basically pretty simple. The Brewers can't lose a game despite losing the best player in baseball. And uh, the Cubs are done. <laughs> and the Cubs had a horrible weekend and are pretty much out of it. I, I, what do we have them at currently of making the playoffs? So right now the Cubs are at 1% to make the playoffs. And this doesn't even really know about the Chris Bryant injury. It just sort of surmises from their recent performance how well they're playing. If you look at our projections it's pretty amazing if you look at the Brewers and the Cubs. The Brewers on September 3rd were 9%. September 10, this is to make the playoffs, uh, 21% on September 10. On September 17th, 53%, and now they're currently at 99%. <laughs> like, wow. <laughs> and without Christian Yelich, as you said, that's yeah, it's mind-blowing. mind-blowing. Yeah. The Cubs were at 69% on September 17th. I don't even need to say the rest of the month, and are now at 1%. So not a good week for the Cubs. It just happened so fast, too. Like, I didn't even really notice the scores. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, the Cubs are four games back. They're definitely not going to make the playoffs. Like, what? Yeah. <laughs> what happened? Yeah. And you can bet heads are going to roll with the Cubs when it comes to this team. Because this is this team is now pretty much underwhelmed for, I think, three straight years now. You know, it is another reminder that, like, when you think you have a window to contend in baseball, yeah. you don't have a window to contend. Yeah. Your window it's, is now. Yeah, it's right now. now. And that's it. Yeah, absolutely. My twins, they are up to 96 wins. And our model has them making it to 100, which is amazing. Would that be the, I think that's what, second most in uh, team history um, going back to like the 60s or something? They had oh, a World right. Series team in the 60s, early 60s, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's right. Though our ELO ratings still just, just, just way on the underrate them. It's ridiculous. They're still only, yeah, they're like still behind, they're behind the Rays. I hate it. They're neck and neck with the Red Sox, and that has been a that's point of contention for you. Not, all it's hot garbage season. is what it is. <laughs> it does look like the Twins will probably end up facing the Yankees in the playoffs. Oh, boy. Which is never a good thing. So I've done some research on this. I'm sorry, Sarah, to bring back these memories. But uh, we can spin it as a positive to try to reverse this. But so the Twins, and I didn't realize that it had reached, like, these depths. They've So they've lost 13 straight playoff games. They've lost 20 of their last 22 playoff games. Those are still active streaks. 
15 of their last 18 playoff games have been against the Yankees. Uh, and their record in those 15 games is 2-13. and 13. The Yankees have ended the twin season in 2003, 2004, 2009, 2010, and in 2017 when they blew a lead, uh, in, an early lead in the wildcard game. So this is like so many demons to exercise in this potential matchup for the Twins if they end up playing the Yankees. But uh, there's so much history there. But again, we can spin it as a chance to finally get redemption against this team that has tormented them so long. I mean, we saw the Red Sox do that in 2004 against the Yankees after a one of the most soul-crushing endings to a season ever in yeah. in uh, with Aaron Boone in 2003 and then they didn't they missed out on A-Rod uh the following off season it was just like the worst possible thing you would think uh and then the the Red Sox come back from down 3-0 and and kind of vanquished that the Twins could do the same. Could I, would, I just love Yankees. seeing the Yankees be the punching bag of some <laughs> yeah. other team sort of, uh, you know, exercising its demons. Yeah, that would be great. I mean, I just, it would, yeah, well, obviously I want the Twins to win. I want them to win all, all of the things, but it would be such a bummer for them to have had this amazing out-of-nowhere season and then just have kind of clunk in it the would. playoffs like so often has happened. And it sucks that the Yankees are like, a powerhouse again, you know, and and you mentioned the Twins tracking for 100 wins in our model. The Yankees tracking for 105 wins. You know, it's like uh, even when the Twins unexpectedly have this amazing triple-digit win season, kind of out of nowhere. I mean, we sort of talked about them as maybe like a promising team that could contend for the wild card mm-hmm. before the season. They've like dominated the AL Central basically wire to wire. Uh, and then even when that happens, oh, look, the Yankees, you know, they're finally getting all of these injured stars. They didn't even need the injured stars for most of the season to to win, you know, this many games. And then now they're getting them back in time for the playoffs. So, yeah. Well, the Yankees yeah. were one of three teams that had commanding leads in their division all season long. The Astros and Dodgers also won their divisions going away. Uh, Neil, how does our model predict these teams to do in the playoffs? Well, right now, uh, our World Series favorite uh, by a very slim margin is the Astros. We give them a 24% chance of winning the World Series, uh, followed by the Yankees at 22%, and then the Dodgers at 20%. And then the gap between the Dodgers and the next highest team, which is the Braves, is 12 percentage points. It goes all the way down to uh, the Braves at 8%. So it seems like a three-team race, you know, all else being equal. So, Jeff, how does our model match up with Vegas odds? It's pretty close. Uh, the Astros are the favorite, a little bit more than 2-1. to one. We're a little higher on the Yankees. They're 4.5-1. to one. Dodgers are 3-1. to one. I think our model actually makes a little less sense because the Yankees will inevitably have to go through the Astros, which the Dodgers don't have. So I think that's enough to sort of discern that small bump in odds. Twins, 14 to 1. That's not terrible. It's not terrible. It's not great, though. It, again, pretty much falls in line with our model. You guys, is there any way that the World Series winner is not one of those three teams? Well, there's a 34% chance, according to our model, if you add it up. I mean, anything can happen in one of these series. We've seen it happen in the past where you have, you know, juggernaut seeming teams. Like I think of the Indians going into the 2017 playoffs, you know, defending pennant winners in the AL. They had gone on this insane winning streak, 20 plus games uh, late in the season. They seemed unstoppable. They go up against the Yankees in the division series. 
take a lead in that division series, I believe a 2 nothing lead, and then within a few days, they're over. I think that's what, in a way, is kind of special about the baseball playoffs is that you play six months of a regular season, you know, 162 games, and your season can be over in less than a week if you don't play your cards right. And so I think that's actually pretty special compared with what we're talking about with the NBA, where the playoffs just seem like such a slog and they seem almost predetermined. There's a lot more uncertainty, even in a case like this, where we're kind of talking about these three teams as being um, on a on a potential collision course with each other. Yeah, I think the last couple of years have been pretty chalky, but you go back a couple of years and, you know, no one thought the Mets were we're going to go to the World Series. Right, the Royals and Mets played in a World Series. <laughs> Although I think the Royals were the one seed. The Royals definitely weren't the one seed the year before when they went to the World Series against the Giants. They had to play their way, yeah. claw their way basically out of a hole in the wildcard game just to advance. And then they didn't lose, I think, all playoffs long almost until the World Series. Anything can happen. Come on, Twins. Twins magic. <laughs> Sarah, you just got a shirt that uh, has a cat on it wearing a Twins hat and it says Joe Meower. I, I did just get That is great. <laughs> They were giving them away at Target Field two weeks ago, and I got one on eBay because that is my life. What a great promotion. My life. All right. Well, we're not going to make predictions until next week, until we know the actual field. So we have one last week of regular season baseball. Cherish it. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. This week, we're thrilled to be joined again by 538 designer Emily Shearer. Hi, Emily. Hello. Take it away. So it's a big week. 39th season of Survivor premieres. 39? How's that even possible? Uh, it's been on for about 19 years. You got a couple of years where there were two seasons a year. Fair enough. This one is called Island of the Idols. Actually features two former athletes. You've got Tom Laidlaw who is a former NHL defenseman. And then you've also got Elizabeth Beisel, who is an Olympic swimmer, which naturally prompted a look back at sort of the whole world of athletes in reality television. It's a wide world. Yeah. It's a very wide world. So you've got everything from like the celebrity shows slash celebrity like versions of normal shows, like Celebrity Big Brother, Celebrity Apprentice, all of those. You've also got Dancing with the Stars, which is a whole other separate rabbit hole that <laughs> will go down eventually. So a favorite of mine is called Battle of the Blades, and it's Canadian, and it's where it's Dancing with the Stars, except it's hockey players who are paired with ice skaters and they have to ice skate. Oh, so it's like a real version of the movie The Cutting Edge, which is the best movie. Or um, Go Figure of the uh, Disney Channel original movie. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Let's go with The Cutting Edge. (laughs) But then you also get athletes on sort of just regular reality shows. It's sort of a mix of stunt casting and they're there for the experience. So on The Bachelor, you had Jordan Rogers, Aaron Rodgers, the strange brother who played college football. Jesse Palmer was sort of oh, yeah. the big uh, athlete face of The Bachelor franchise for a long time, which then turned into a media career. Colton Underwood, our former uh, recent Bachelor, Clay Harbor, a lot of like former athletes who really just played while they were abroad. And then The Amazing Race has also done a lot of sort of athlete teams. Mostly sort of stunt casting, but some are less recognizable. They had one team that won that was former athletes. They were a pair of brothers who played hockey, one only in the NHL and one in the minors. And then also recognizable, you had Alex Rossi and Connor Daly, who are IndyCar drivers. Which makes sense for the Amazing Race to have some 
drivers, right? Like yeah. that. They're amazing right. at yeah. racing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there was actually a, like a driving <laughs> task in that season. Of there course. usually Seems is something unfair. that like aligns with what they're good at. And then you've also had like basketball players, Harlem Globetrotters, X Games women, just the whole ton on the Amazing Race. But Survivor is sort of the like total outlier in all of this, and that it's not really stunt casting. They're mostly just athletes who are on here for the experience, which you sort of get from being on for 39 seasons. Right. There's an actual like acclaimed year show, and they're not casting to get the eyeballs. They don't really do that well on the show, though. So part of that, I think, is that you've got the social and strategic game that is sort of the extra layer than just winning challenges. So on a show like The Challenge, you can kind of just win your way to the end. As long as you get to like the end first, you win the whole thing. But on Survivor, you actually have to convince people to vote for you. So the social game is so much more important. And that is where they all seem to struggle, particularly if you have a really big personality who's used to winning. And then you're on a team that doesn't win. They take it out on their other like tri-mates, which doesn't help their social game at all. So like John Rocker, when he was on, was voted out third. Brad Culpepper's first time around, he was voted out sixth. And there was also just like a whole lot of Jeff Kent, not a great social player. No one who followed the early 2000s Giants would have guessed that at all. <laughs> Jim, Jimmy Johnson was voted out really early too, right? So Jimmy Johnson was on the show when he was um, 67. He was the oldest on a tribe of old people. <laughs> this was a season divided by age. Everyone was sort of like, Oh my God, he's a celebrity. We don't want him on our tribe. So that's sort of a history that of on Survivor, you get a mix of people being like, Oh, I want to take this person to the end because no one will vote for them to get a million dollars. And then also like, I'm not going to vote for you to get a million dollars. Why are you even here? Which these aren't really successful professional athletes normally. So, so the argument is a little, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, Jimmy Johnson was hawking like Viagra pills around the same time. So he needed money. (laughs) Yeah. Pretty much. So sort of the big original athlete on Survivor was Gary Hogaboom, who, um, was on season 11 in Guatemala. He played when he was 46 years old. So usually they're older and ready for the adventure. They've definitely retired. So he was a former NFL quarterback. He only had like 79 games, mostly a backup. Mostly just remembered because he had a weird name. I think he started a couple years. Career 18 and 19 record as a starter. (laughs) (laughs) Below 500. Well, that's a lot of decisions, though. So when he was on the show, he was really worried that his trimates were going to vote him off for being a professional NFL quarterback. So he went in and was like, oh, I'm Gary Hawkins. I'm a landscaper. (laughs) (laughs) Hawkins. What a name. Gary Hawkins, landscaper. And then so on the opposite tribe, you had a woman who eventually won that season who worked in sports broadcasting, who knew who he was immediately. Oh, no. And then was like, oh, you're Gary Hogaboom. He's like, no, I'm not. <laughs> like, you, you went to Central Michigan. Well, I went, but I didn't play. <laughs> so he was so worried that everyone would like not, would like care too much and vote him out. Everyone knew and no one cared. Absolutely no one cared, but he still kept up this facade. And then, Wait, the whole time? He never admitted that he was Gary I don't know if everyone knew. I feel like he did dupe them for a little while. For like a couple days. But also, it's a weird game because like it's it's one game where you – having a big profile is something you're trying to avoid, especially in like the first wave of it before it becomes one tribe. So like you're actively trying to not bring attention to yourself and try to just kind of hang in the background until it gets narrowed down. So – 
being I understand his decision making. You don't want to target on your back. Yeah. So John Rocker also wanted to use a fake last name and then was immediately recognized. And then Jeff Kent also tried to do this and was also recognized by one person on his tribe who he then promptly voted out (laughs) in retribution yes did he at least like shave his mustache i feel like that if you have something that's like a calling card like that you could sort of adjust it to avoid being recognized i don't know uh no he had the mustache he he just (laughs) went with it yeah (laughs) he went with it Jeff Kemp also wasn't terrible. He 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 held his own. He held his least. own. He also like tore his MCL in the first challenge when they were just getting off the boat. So he oh, no. wasn't much of an athletic contributor for his team. <laughs> and that's why current athletes aren't allowed to go on Survivor. Exactly. Right? <laughs> the ideal athlete on Survivor, I think, was sort of our only professional athlete who was a winner on Survivor. Ethan Zahn on the third season of Africa who was a professional soccer player in the sense that he played soccer for his job, but he played in like very, very, very low-level MLS in Zimbabwe. But he won basically because he was a really strong social player. He only won one individual immunity and basically had the really strong social relationships. He never got a vote against him on the show, and everyone he voted for went home. So he played sort of the perfect social and voting game. And then he won. And now he's back on season 40, I believe, which starts in the spring. Basically, the lesson here is that like the stars, they have too much of an ego. But if you go for like the lower level, worse players, they're more likely to be like team oriented and just hold things together and get along better socially, I guess, and be more likely to win. Absolutely. I think that's sort of the key thing. You need to be able to work well on a team. It helps to have that sort of athletic drive and that focus that comes from doing competitions for your life. But... You need to be likable. You need to be able to work in a group. So you have to be like an offensive lineman, not a wide receiver. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Um, So actually, the only other sort of really successful football player on Survivor was Brad Culpepper, a former NFL defensive tackle. Played for the Vikings. Yes. So his wife, Monica, had sort of been on the show first, and then he came on with her. She went on to be runner-up on that season. He left early because of his aforementioned poor social game where he alienated (laughs) his whole tribe. But when he came back in season 34, he significantly improved his social game and then also had probably the best run of individual immunity challenges by a former athlete. And he got three votes at the end, was a runner-up, didn't actually win, but definitely the best performance by like an actual pro athlete. Maybe most improved. Yeah, most improved. Significantly improved, yes. <laughs> we'll see if the, the athletes can, uh, can do the sports world proud. <laughs> okay, well, that will do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and be sure to review and rate the show. It really does help other people discover the program. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Grace Lynch. Tony Chow is in the control room. Our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Emily, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening and talk to you next time. <laughs>